There's a language spoken by a minority of people with only seven letters in its alphabet. It's the shortest alphabet in the world. Most of the words in this tongue are two, three, or four letters long, with few exceptions, and these appear with alarming regularity of order and syntax. There are no tenses in this language, but paradoxically it manages to express time as well as timelessness to match the poetry of other languages. Over 90% of its literature is made up of no more than a dozen words, and yet it has the richest, most beautiful, and mysterious literature of all. Furthermore, all its letters look the same written down, and for that reason so do all the words. Variations in the lettering exist, but they're uniform as well, so when they're learned for one letter, they're learned for all the others. The advantage of this is that it takes no more than one afternoon to learn the basics of how to read and write it, and its immense pleasures start becoming available to anyone who embarks on that first afternoon. Despite this, and despite the fact that its alphabet is identical with the first seven letters of the English alphabet, well over 99% of the world is not only ignorant of it, but thinks it takes inborn talent and a lifelong commitment to learn it. Four-year degrees are given on it at some expense all over the world in reputable universities. I'm talking, of course, about music. The television series Civilization by Kenneth Clark is one of my all-time favorites. I still remember my shock when I heard Lord Clark say that Charlemagne had learned to read, but he never learned to write. He said he just couldn't get the hang of it. Darwin famously said that humans have evolved to speak, but not to write. And anyone who's tried to learn a foreign language knows that understanding its native speakers long precedes the ability to express oneself in writing in that language. Literacy requires a deliberate effort in a way that speaking does not. It shouldn't come as a surprise, then, that a civilization's growth really takes off at the point where it achieves literacy. Aside from that sentence, an image has remained as indelible from part one of civilization. Lord Clark showed statues of scribes with quills in their hands, the significance being that writing was so astonishing a skill to the 9th or 10th century European that the person who had achieved, in Clark's words, this almost divine accomplishment was a figure worthy of statuary adoration. I wondered if the number of people in Europe who were literate in both reading and writing then even reached three digits. How few people have to be able to read and write for it to seem divine when someone is able? I've looked a bit, and it seems that at the time of Charlemagne, the European literacy rate was no higher than 6%. If I'm wrong, I'm happy to be corrected. Whatever the real figure is, at the time of those statues, I feel certain that if a survey was taken asking a representative sample of Europeans, do you believe anyone can learn to read and write, yes, no, explain, when the Holy Roman Emperor himself couldn't write, the common answer would be, no, literacy is a gift given only to a few. Where would the person be who claimed anyone could read and write, if only the assumption be removed that it's fated to some and not to others? There's a period movie I love called Beckett, about the 12th century Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, with Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton. 
In the council meeting scene in the beginning of the film, Henry II is trying to force the clergy to pay taxes. Feeling himself too insecure to match wits with church leaders, he turns Thomas Becket on them. Knowing his learning and eloquence easily rivals theirs, I cherish the line which has got to be one of the funniest intimidation lines ever. Henry II shouts, He's read books, you know, it's amazing. He's drunk and wenched his way to London where he's thinking all the time. It seems that when many people haven't yet acquired a skill, the few people who have appear to be gifted it by some magical force. Living today, we don't think reading and writing books is amazing, and don't for a moment countenance the idea that a child would grow up illiterate. Many of us can't even name a single person who's unable to write down the next sentence they're going to speak. In fact, you can hardly prevent some from sending another text, can you? How did we get here? An assumption had to have either disappeared unnoticed in the pursuit of another goal, or been actively gotten rid of, and were amply rewarded, our success rate for literacy is practically 100%. Have we ever tried teaching children of normal cognitive functioning to write, failed, and then had the reason emerge to be the child's insufficient natural talent for it? I doubt this. This is because today literacy is the power to meet the demands of life, economic, social, and personal. So at no point is the child's talent for literacy questioned when he or she lags behind. Why should music be any different? In his pamphlet, Common Sense, Thomas Paine observed that, quote, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. Time makes more converts than reason. I think we live in the same relation to music literacy that people lived in relation to general literacy over a thousand years ago. For music, it's far less than 6%. I think this accounts for much of the wonder shown at musical accomplishment. I think the effect of astonishment it reliably produces is psychologically the same as that which carved those statues in the 10th century or made the ordinary person stand in awe of the clergy's ability to read the Latin Bible, for example, before the Reformation. I believe it's in everyone's capacity to learn to read and write music and hear it in the mind when looking at the page, just as we do when reading a book, and in a much shorter time than it would take to learn any spoken language or go through any university degree. My conviction comes from looking at the requirements of music and its fundamentals, and I can only conclude that what prevents this is fear, accrued from a long habit of thinking it to be inborn, and a lack of demand. Music literacy is made to be difficult. It's not intrinsically so. Of course, I don't mean to say that music poses no difficulties, or even that it doesn't pose extraordinary challenges. What I am claiming is that learning how to read and write music, just as we do in our mother tongue, is not a matter of musical gifts, however much it's asserted to be by the wisest pedagogue. Our language shows this too. We call someone gifted, a description that reveals exactly where we believed such a skill came from. It follows that anyone not so fortunate attempting to acquire it will never do it in a million years. This leaves no room for something very important to music after all. Fun. Enjoyment. My only modification would be that just as it's not in everyone to be a poet or a great writer, 
not everyone will write great music. Why do we take this bleak view? What would the experiment look like that tried to spread music literacy as widely as general literacy is? No campaign I or anyone else wages is going to do this if the demand isn't there. All I can do is to show what people don't know they're missing without it. Before addressing what I think is the main fear, it might be worth asking where the demand is for music literacy in life today and where it was in the past. Perhaps this experiment was done once before. Firstly, playing music, poetry, drawing, reading, and dancing, and many other things, were to the past what multiple season television series are now. It was primetime family activity going back into the Dark Ages. Until it could be reproduced electronically, music required a recreative act, like reading aloud. Most people played music for themselves. In the Victorian period, for example, it was an ordinary thing to have some proficiency on an instrument. This naturally means that music literacy was almost as widespread as literacy itself. We've all heard that women in earlier centuries often learned to play instruments to increase marriage prospects. While this is true, studying an instrument had an even more practical aim. Most people played instruments not because it looked good on their high school transcript, or even their trophy wife transcript, but because studying an instrument meant that you were prepared for a lifetime of family and social entertainment at home. Secondly, it's useful to remember how much music was a part of church services, as it still is. Singing from hymnals had a role in developing music literacy. It supported it in at least three ways. One, by its regularity. Two, by the fact that as a congregant you're singing from notation while hearing those around you, like a choir, and you have a trained choir facing you to listen to as well. And three, by the importance of the ritual itself in life and community, which gave it all kinds of social support. And there are many other reasons. Since making music was associated with God, nation, community, family, neighbor, ancestor, afterlife, and was the chief form of entertainment at home, it made sense for the literate person to be musically literate as well, or at least to have a base level of competence in it. There was a demand for it. If we could go back and ask them why they're learning to read and write music, their first reaction would likely be, why not? Why shouldn't I? Doesn't everyone else? Don't I sing in church? Doesn't so-and-so like to sing, and when the such-and-such family come over, doesn't Charlotte accompany them on the piano? Don't we all write songs and madrigals from our poetry extracts? For the 19th century Europeans, or at least for those who were fortunate enough to have the time to enjoy such things, reading and writing music was a natural part of life's routine, and as they went about their analog lives, they didn't yet know they had the option of not being talented in it. Today, a fraction of us are in church with that sort of regularity, and we have music on our person available all the time. The skill of playing an instrument, if you'll pardon, plays no part in it, nor is there any demand for it if just hearing music is the aim. This has caused a curious phenomenon in light of the idea that civilization takes off once it has the power to record its thoughts in a hard copy. Literacy in general allowed us as a civilization to rise out of mere subsistence, relatively speaking, 
and to effect a renaissance of philosophy. Kenneth Clark's first program was called The Skin of Our Teeth, by which he meant European civilization was saved almost from extinction after the fall of the Roman Empire by the combination of being centralized under Charlemagne and the achievement of literacy courtesy of the church, along with everything else. Slowly, literacy proliferated. A similar idea can be applied to the development of music if we call the body of classical music as a history of civilization in sound, only backwards. What's happened in the last hundred years is that a reverse process has happened in music literacy. The average educated person could read music then and can't now. The availability of recorded music has made that skill unnecessary and, except in professional circles, obsolete. We haven't lost classical music, though, nor have we stopped appreciating it, nor are we delinquent at it. In fact, quite the opposite in some ways. The general level of orchestral playing would have been unimaginable in centuries past. By sheer numbers, we have more people playing instruments than ever before. What we've lost is the amateur. For classical music, there's no longer such a thing as a lay culture. We don't entertain ourselves anymore by playing instruments together. This disconnects us from the cultural past to that extent, and prevents us from understanding what function art played in it, because it doesn't have participatory function by non-professionals in ours. This is another way of saying it's not part of the economy. Through the whole 19th century, there were almost limitless publications of domestic music, especially art songs, drawing-room ballads, chamber music, as well as arrangements of bigger genres like operas and symphonies, for all kinds of instruments that can be played at home. Understandably, these disappeared with the invention of recording. Before that, the main way to hear an opera or a symphony was by playing an arrangement of it yourself, usually on a piano, or on other instruments at home. You couldn't hear the original unless an orchestra nearby would play it at an affordable price. One can only imagine with what attention people listened to the quality of orchestral sounds when hearing a symphony they had heard only in piano arrangement up to that moment, but which they were familiar with by playing. The importance of amateur involvement might seem a strange thing to emphasize, but if it's true that what gets noticed gets fixed, then what a culture notices, it'll raise the standards of. The great English conductor Sir Thomas Beecham had this to say of the subject in his memoir, A Mingled Chime. Quote, There remains for brief consideration the amateur, by no means the least important element in any artistic community. For without a certain degree of culture in the audience, a virtuoso reproduces the subtler and finer sides of his art in vain. It must be allowed, too, that amateurs have an honorable place in the history of music, and that we owe to them more than one reform or innovation, not the least being the invention of grand opera. Furthermore, that which goes on within the walls of the house, meaning the home, not the opera house, the sort of book that is read or class of music that is studied and practiced mirrors the intellectual life of a people even more faithfully than the public careers of prominent individuals. End quote. 
So what's done by amateurs at home is an even more faithful representation of the culture than the career of the virtuoso, or the professional. It raises the question, who leads a culture, the professional or the amateur? If you've tried writing your own stories, your appreciation of a good novelist increases. If you've written a few melodies and accompaniments yourself, your appreciation of playing or hearing a masterpiece similarly increases. That's a different type of attention. But if you're the professional writer or composer, certainly you challenge yourself to write at least as well as the layman, and it's possible that you wouldn't be acquiring those, quote, subtler and finer sides of the art unless the general culture was already competent in them and voiced an opinion about them. Besides that, the certain amount of culture in the audience comes about because in amateur circles the art is social and recreational in its purpose. That Beecham isn't referring just to listening appreciation is proved by the fact that it would have been impossible at home in the 19th century without at least one person playing in each household. This is the force that creates new art, and of genres of art on the order of grand opera, no less. Looked at from this angle, the amateur begins to look like the pearl richer than all the tribe when it comes to an art. Beecham gives us an image of what this was like, this time in more humble sectors than the wealthy amateur patrons that made up the audience of Parisian grand opera. He says that anyone who could just scrape or blow on an instrument assembled into groups in homes everywhere to play, and at one point even a mania for strange instrumental combinations took possession of the English. Quote, Anyone who walked through my village on a winter evening might have heard in every fourth or fifth house the pathetic wailings of flutes and clarinets, the solemn chortlings of bassoons and horns, and of the more majestic complaints of trombones and tubas. End quote. He goes on to things very strange to us. Even whole towns would have a preference for a certain instrument, and the flute was the favorite in his. One quartet of flute players, quote, met regularly for practice about twice a week after working hours in a room on the ground floor of one of their houses, and as they never troubled to pull down the blinds, they provided a free peep show that was an unfailing delight to all the vicinity. End quote. Again, it's not hard to think of the market for sheet music with such a prevalence of amateurs. Every fourth or fifth house. Newspapers even had a section at the back sometimes reserved just for music, and new pieces would be printed in them each week. Imagine even the art section of a paper printing music today. This happened until just within living memory. You can look these up in English magazines and papers from the 1910s and earlier in online archives. They were never of high quality or difficulty, which shows they were meant for consumption that week, something like the musical equivalent of the weekly shopping. The interesting thing to me in all this is that it doesn't appear that anxiety or a sense of inadequacy plays a big part. Music notation didn't seem to carry the fear with it that it so often does now, to come back to the other impediment. Amateur means one who does something for the love of it. The motivation comes from the pleasure of sharing a social activity. When this spirit of leisure departs, specialty is more often the justification for its continuance. And with that, instruction tends to swell out of proportion. In the amateur circle, instruction is not really thought about, and if it is, it's not academic in origin. 
It's in part osmosis, common sense, and imitation, as in the church service and home entertainments mentioned above, and by experiment and shared knowledge among equals. You might say it's the language of music learned as a baby learns to speak, not a prodigious skill, maybe, but fit enough for the purpose, and, moreover, a native music nonetheless. The fear of failure that haunts the student in school and the professional at work doesn't bother the amateur, as there isn't an accredited standard imposed from outside. These are the two places predominantly where music remains, and they're the models looked at by someone beginning to learn music now. The professional's concerns are too distant from a beginner. The motivation of the people in both is usually an inner calling, or a passion if not the grades. To the would-be amateur, both tend to make music a bit over-serious, but the school methods are the only ones available, and often these obscure instead of enlighten. How common music literacy was in the past should remind us that its fundamentals are not so hard. Anyone trying to learn it now, without learning to fear it as well, will see its pleasures at once. For example, have you noticed what a beautiful system of symmetry music is written in? The initial lesson is the staff, the five lines on which music is notated. It's usually taught by the mnemonic every good boy does fine, or some variation like every good bird does fly, or every good boy deserves favor, which is also the title of a Tom Stoppard play. The purpose is to ease the memorization of the lines of the treble clef from the bottom up, E, G, B, D, F. For children, this may be of help, but for anyone else, I think this is unproductive because it adds an unnecessary mental step and causes the stumbling block that a new mnemonic needs to be found for any cleft that's not the treble. Mnemonics, one should remember, are for when one doesn't want to learn something, but needs to remember it, or for saving mental energy on unimportant things one doesn't need to master, or when the source of information is going to be scarce later. They're not helpful when applied to fundamentals that have to be fluent, and can only be so by repetition. It isn't mentally strenuous in any case to memorize five of the first seven letters of the alphabet, in order, skipping a letter. That's less information than a telephone number. If you know your alphabet to the letter G, the staff and all clefs are as simple as follows. Think of the staff as a ruler or grid. The five lines are merely equidistant positions, like inch markings or lines of latitude. They don't represent notes themselves at all. We need a grid to write the music on so that the eye can measure the distance of notes easily. Now in musical notation, the alphabet ends with the letter G and loops around to A indefinitely, at least in theory. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D, etc. If you recite this looping alphabet, skipping a letter each time, since there are only seven letters, it won't take you very long to get used to this gapped alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G now reads A, C, E, G, B, D, F. The most useful thing to know in all music. Think of this as the real musical alphabet. Learn it as fully as you learned the alphabet in kindergarten. And try it in reverse direction once you've got it down. These letters and their corresponding notes are the same distance from each other as the lines of the staff. 
so they correspond to the marks on the ruler or latitude lines. Upward on the lines means alphabetical direction, downwards means the reverse direction. Now any of the lines of the staff can be any of these seven letters, but their order never changes. So if I tell you the lowest line is A, then you know the next line up is C, because this alphabet skips a letter every time. The next one, E, and the next, G, etc. The spaces in between the lines represent the letters that are skipped. How do we know which line represents which note, or which letter? This is what the clefs are for. A clef, the French word for key, designates one of the lines as a specific note. Treble clef tells you where a specific G is, and is also called the G clef for that reason. Now, technically, the treble clef, like all clefs, can be put on any of the five lines. So assuming for the moment that the staff extends by as many lines as we like, in both directions like a grid, a line designated as G means the line above it would be, that's right, B. And the next line up from that would be D, you're catching on. But since the notation is standardized, a treble clef is always put on the second line from the bottom. You'll never see it anywhere else in printed music. But it's good to know the principle behind it, that theoretically it can be put on any of them. There are three clefs in use in standard notation, three ways of designating a line as a certain note. The treble, or G clef, the bass, or F clef, tells you where a specific F is, and the C clef tells you where a specific C is. These are familiar symbols. It takes only a second to look them up and you'll recognize them immediately. The bass clef, like the treble clef, is also standardized and will appear always on the fourth line or one from the top. By the way, the lines are usually numbered from the bottom up, just like the alphabetical order of the notes. But you can very well make up your own clef if you want. You can make an A clef, shape it yourself however you like, that tells you where a specific A is, and put it on any line of the staff. Fortunately, you won't need to do this because, unlike the treble and bass clefs, the C clef is used on all lines except the fifth, or top line. So with four different standard lines the C clef can be positioned on, plus the treble and bass, Almost every position of the notes on the staff is accounted for by some clef. Once you know the position and relationship of the seven letters to each other in the gapped alphabet, you can read any clef. If this seems even remotely difficult, repeat the gapped alphabet. It'll also be useful to write them out vertically in ascending alphabetical order. The more familiar this order of notes is to you, the more quickly you'll become fluent at all clefs with practice. Of course, it's not going to be fluent immediately, but then even a new word in your native language isn't until you've been using it a few times. This is the fundamental, the DNA, which will be reinforced by and will greatly ease the learning of the rest of music theory. Indeed, it does for music what the four types of bases do for DNA, and the elegance of its application again and again, and the economy of means to ends, is something we'll return to in later episodes. Now, the reason why there is more than one clef is because with only five lines, the staff, which is again just a measuring tool, has only so wide a range. 
and the music's range often goes outside of it. The notes are easiest to see when they're within the five lines. The staff is a bit like a six-inch ruler on a wider musical map, so we need to move it up and down, and this is what the clef does. Instead of adding more lines, which would make the staff itself difficult to judge, we just change the clef. For example, let's say the lowest line is C, and the music goes lower. We can reposition that C four lines higher, so that the notes that fell beneath the staff now fall in it by this change of clef. This keeps most of the music in the center of the staff. This is as beautifully geometric a construction as latitude and longitude, and as useful in navigating music, and that's all it should ever be. It's a means to an end. If you followed this so far, congratulations. You can start looking at music, and the entire literature since the Renaissance is understandable at least with respect to clefs and note names. The rest of music theory's fundamentals are no more complicated. They just need to be used without fear for a time. The supposed difficulty in all this comes from the tacit assumption of it before study even begins. Teachers have all seen a student who's had trouble learning, say, the bass clef, because they got it in their heads as children that the lines of the staff are E, G, B, D, F, which is the musical equivalent of not being able to tell the time when the hands are on the left side of the clock face. This is not an indicator of lacking talent, but of a bad method, or more precisely, a method without a higher aim which has disappeared. Yet it's on such points that more people have given up music on the grounds that it showed their lack of aptitude. The familiar pattern is something like this. Starts with preliminaries, theory, and mnemonics. Finds trouble. Feels stuck at the beginning. Frustration. Sees no amateurs like self playing for fun. Compares underperforming self with others, mostly music students and professionals. Doubts self. Crippling self-consciousness takes over. Concludes missing talent. Fears of humiliation puts nail in the coffin. Quits. As with my hypothetical 9th century survey taker, such a person is convinced less by argument and will be converted with less effort after seeing neighbors and friends and strangers playing music for the pure amusement of it and not for either school or to make a livelihood. Then he or she is only a couple of friends' requests away from seeing all the supposed talent barriers to reading music disappear. Before we wrap up this first episode, let me answer a concern that might have crept in as you listened. If throughout any of this I begin to sound, or the argument begins to look like nostalgia, some hankering for a bucolic, idealized past, I promise you this isn't the aim. It's just that with every gain there's some loss. So it's inevitable that occasionally the past will turn out to have been better than the present for something, despite our obvious progress. It's the unself-conscious participation in music that I'm drawing attention to and contrasting to the present. I think the professional classical music world would also benefit vastly if it had an amateur audience to play to, and if it adopted some of its characteristics. I'm trying to understand the past as best I can and retain what's valuable, which looks to me like a fair amount. One of the things I'm going to try to do in this podcast is to give a glimpse of what, in my opinion, the literature of classical music is like, and how it's different from a little closer up. Hopefully that'll inspire you to make the enormously, disproportionately rewarding effort of becoming literate in it. 
maybe even taking up an instrument or doing so with a bunch of friends, which would be the participatory ideal. If not, of course there's nothing wrong with just listening to it. To anyone who's convinced they have no musical talent, I reassure you that learning to read music will not alter that fact. But a world of beauty is available to you if you are familiar with it. I'll talk about subjects that have obsessed me, whether they're operas, symphonies, the influence of one work on another, a philosophical theme running through a composer's music, or the significance of certain works in influencing a trend. I'll be saying things I might say in conversation with like-minded friends at a concert or opera, or more likely debating these points long into the night afterwards. These, much more than the classroom, are the real sources of education. Why are certain works still remembered, and what part of human experience do they deal with? How the composer achieves his or her effects is a topic of unending interest, and how these effects manifest their personality is only one reason to look at them. There may even be a series of episodes devoted to one composer or one piece, and I have many such ideas. I'll also talk about performance, occasionally, as it relates to the above. I'm always trying to speak profitably with both sides of the concert hall. A word also on form. The podcasts I listen to religiously have evolved into their polished state. Their first episodes were not quite like their current ones. I hope listeners will be indulgent toward inevitable mistakes I'll be making, especially at the beginning. I have a tendency to long-windedness I struggle to keep under control. I hope that won't get in the way too much. And you should know at the outset that I'm a non-linear thinker anyway and liable to take a good tangent if it tempts me. In general, the liberation of the personality from the obstacles to its growth is one of the subtexts running throughout, which occasionally comes to the surface at appropriate times. At these moments, the listener I have in mind is often the university student, but not exclusively. I'm sure I'll learn more about how to do many things as this goes on, and I look forward to your comments, whether you're musicians, teachers, scholars, listeners, whoever you are, or new to classical music. Like history itself, the history of music is a great drama. It's a conversation across centuries, in a universal language by its greatest participants. It should be better known. I'll close with an anecdote I love from the great Sir Arthur Sullivan. Having written a tune similar to another one by a certain Malloy, and asked whether this was conscious or unconscious plagiarism on his part, Sullivan replied, I'm not acquainted with the tune you mention, but had I been, you must remember that Maestro Malloy and I have only seven notes to choose from between us. This is Thinking in Music. I'm Sina Kiai. Thanks for listening.